What do you think of when you hear OCD? Do you imagine someone washing their hands or flipping a light switch on and off over and over and over again? Today, I share a meal with a BCBA who lives with obsessive compulsive disorder. We also discuss the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of using ACT and diffusing from our thoughts as a treatment for OCD, which reminds me of today's behavior bite and one of my earliest memories of diffusing from my thoughts. When I was four years old, I had a neighborhood bully who wouldn't let anyone play with me. I remember running home crying and my mom grabbing a bag of M&Ms to share while we discussed what happened. She reminded me that the neighborhood bully is probably going through her own issues, and while it's not okay to be mean, I should still act with kindness back to her. Welcome to Behavior Bites with Rosie Eats, where we share a virtual meal with behavior analysts, psychologists, educators, and other helping professionals. Building a community can be hard when you're always pouring into others. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite food, and let's dig in. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Rosie, and I'm so excited to introduce our dinner guest. This person has become a fast friend after I reached out to wish her good luck on the BCBA exam. Since then, we've evolved into frequent voice memo chats. It's Carissa Crabtree. Hi, Carissa. Hello. Is there anything else you'd like to share before our meal is served? No, I'm excited and hungry. <laughs> I hope you brought your appetite. So let's start with our amuse-bouche. Uh, the chef's whim today is, could you describe yourself using only one word? I love this question because it lets me talk about this word. Growing up, I was like the most extra person on earth, especially in my family. I come from a family of waspy people where everyone's very tennis skirts and proper and, and scotch on the rocks. And I was not that person. One time, my uncle, when I was younger, he said, she's just too much. Well, she's just too much. And Alice in Wonderland, the new live action, came out on my birthday that year, on March 5th. And I went and saw that movie on my birthday with a bunch of friends. And in the movie, the Mad Hatter says, you used to be muchier. You've lost your muchness. From that moment, I was like, I am muchness. <laughs> like, if someone <laughs> asked me what I am, I am muchness. That little quote has really just allowed me to be able to be like, it's okay to be too much, right? Live in Lewis Carroll world where muchness is a good thing. And I just accept that I'm not too much. I just am what I am. And other mm -hmm. people's expectations aren't my problem. But I love that word. And I love that quote. And I have it on my wall in my office. And um it just, it really gave me a lot of freedom at like 13, right? However old I was that year, mm -hmm. 12, 13, and I've been able to just continue that freedom. So I'm muchness. I'm a lot. And I know that. <laughs> um, I recognize that I'm a lot for a lot of people, but that's, that's okay. Yeah, that is muchness. I don't think I've heard that because I probably have watched the movie, but I can't think of it. Is that the one, Johnny Depp? Yes. Mm, I'll have to rewatch it because I like that too. It's in the book too, of course. I think mm -hmm. that quote is in the book. But um, yeah, when she comes back and she's like an adult now, right? She's not a little girl anymore. She comes back and she's like, I have to be responsible and I have to do all these things. And he goes, you were much muchier before. You've lost your muchness. 
Like, I don't know what's happened to you. You're you're not as fun anymore. And he says it with such seriousness that Johnny Depp, Mad Hatter seriousness. Like, he's just, like, very mm-hmm. disturbed. By it. Yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, oh. Much, muchier. Much, muchier. <laughs> much, muchier. I like that. It also reminds me, I, I'm probably going to reference Elise Myers in, like, all my podcast episodes. She also talks about that. Like, if I'm too much, then go find less. And I have that sweatshirt that just says, like, go find less, go find less, go find less. It's a good little, like, inside joke. I love groups where it's, like, one giant inside joke. Like, the rat is always right, right? Mm -hmm. And I love rats. I own rats. So, like, it's so funny because I love saying that. Because for me, it has, like, six different meanings. All right. Let's get into our appetizers. First up, congrats. You're almost coming up on your first year as a BCBA. So congratulations on that. Yes, it was. Oh, my gosh. It was so funny. I feel like I was a one and done, but I'm not proud of it um, because I feel <laughs> like I didn't. I'm a very good test taking person. Test taking skills are a strength. And it's a very big let the test help you take the test test. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like so, so much test anxiety happens. And I remember they printed that one piece of paper and I was walking out of the testing center, which was in North, North Georgia. I drove two hours because the ones in Atlanta were all full and mm-hmm. it was in the mountains of this place called Dahlonega. It's gorgeous up there. And so like, it's gorgeous outside. It's March, it's spring. I'm staring at this piece of paper and I'm just like that moment. I don't know if you've seen that moment when Jennifer Lawrence won her Oscar, she had a really bad day. And there's this moment where she's on Graham Norton and she's talking about it. And she goes, I just stared at the Oscar. I'm like, what does it all mean? Nothing. (laughs) I had this whole breakdown where I was like, I don't know what this means. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I drove home for two hours to myself and I went, okay, it's going to be okay. You got this. And so, um, yeah, a full year. That's crazy. That's crazy. I feel like we spend so long getting our fieldwork hours and studying that when Mm -hmm. it actually happens, it's so surreal. It really is. And like, it's painted as a stark contrast between the people that had to wait for the results and the people that get them immediately. But in talking, because I'm one that had to wait, but then talking to people like you that got it immediately, it's still the same feeling. Like the waiting period, you know, that's a little bit different. But even after you find out you pass, um, or even just leaving the testing center, Mm -hmm. it's the same feeling. So I tested in February, I also drove probably about two hours to the site. And I did it first thing in the morning, because I was like, I don't want to perseverate on it all day. Uh, So I got up at like 4am, got ready, started driving at five or something. I don't know if I would ever do that again, but I did it. (laughs) You never have to. (laughs) (laughs) And then I remember going in when it was dark, it was like still pitch black out. Maybe the sun was rising a little bit because winter in New England is not fun. And then leaving, you know, three hours later when it's almost 11, 12 o'clock. And I remember just stepping outside and there was snow on the ground. And if you haven't ever seen a sunny, snowy day, it's just like walking into the purest white light that you can imagine. And I remember just like walking out and like my pupils just like contracted. And I was like, okay, um, well, I'm glad I made like a plan afterwards. It was Valentine's Day. And so Aww. I had pre-ordered 
donuts from, uh, I was close to Providence and some of my favorite donut places are in Providence. So I'd already pre-ordered Valentine's donuts. And so I picked those up, my heart-shaped donuts. And I was like, these are my, you did it, Rose donuts. <laughs> six weeks later, I forget how long, but I was a while. Six weeks later, it was like, you passed. And it was still the same feeling of like, what now? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I took my LSATs, right? The law school lunches exam, which after that, nothing's hard. Nothing's difficult after you It's the most horrific exam. Um, and I studied for eight months and I did pretty well. Uh, but when I yeah. walked out of that exam, I'll never forget where I took it. And I walked out and it was raining. And I realized in that moment, after eight months of work and thousands of dollars and being exhausted, that I didn't want to go to law school. And I was like, I could have figured that out six hours ago, but it was like this immediate knowledge. I had been planning to go to law school since I was 12. It was this immediate knowledge that I wasn't going to law school. And I was like, cool. So I just get bragging rights that I took the LSAT for no reason for the rest of my life. Speaking of that, so how did you even get into behavior analysis? Yeah. So I have a brother on the spectrum who turned 25 yesterday, which is insane. He's not allowed oh, to be 25. Happy birthday. I know my little Capricorn and he um has been an ABA since he was 20 months old mm. and so it's something I was always around my mother had been in behavior analysis and therapy and social work um always my whole life she's actually working towards certification finally now and um I'd always been around ABA always I've been in ABA clinics volunteered been in groups been in summer camps um, in high school, I had to do a research project for my magnet degree, and I did it on ABA, and I, like, took literal data. I had, like, IRB review, <laughs> like, on children. I had always been around it, and that gave me a lot of insight to that I, it's not what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't at all what I wanted to do. I've been around it too much, too often. There are things I loved about it. There are things I hated about it, mm -hmm. and I got to see those up close for a long time, those longer term effects of ABA as a child on an adult that people don't like to talk about. And I see them every day. I live with my brother. I see them every day. The gaps, we call them in his file folders, what my mother would call them, where, mm. oops, they skipped that target and they didn't, mm -hmm. you know, or they made it, they reached mastery in a week and no one revisited it in maintenance. And you, you see it sometimes and you're like, it's very rote. The behavior is rote, even mm -hmm. as an adult. And that training, training to be rose, is hard to undo. And so I appreciated ABA for what it was. And then I went off to college and I did political science and Middle Eastern studies. And um, I loved it, loved Arabic, went to get my master's, was finishing my master's, about to go into my PhD in political science. And I got in a really, really bad car accident. And... I had a severe concussion and post-concussion syndrome. I couldn't put on my pants. I couldn't drive. I couldn't read. I couldn't hold a spoon. And political science is nothing if not wordy. <laughs> I was reading between two and 500 pages a week for my master's, mm -hmm. not my PhD, my master's. Mm -hmm. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages because you just take it in. Right. I was doing congressional politics and presidential politics, like enriched in American political culture. And I couldn't read anymore. I still can't read. 
it's been almost four years. It'll be four years. I took my exam on the third anniversary of my accident. Oh, wow. So my, I'll have be one year of BCBA. It'll be four years since my accident on the same day. I couldn't read. I still can't read more than 20, 30 pages at a time. And so I was out of school, lost my funding, couldn't go to school for what I planned to go to school for since I was a kid and didn't know what to do. And so I went to work. I got my RBT certification. I went to work at the company I'd always been at, my my brother's company. And I realized that I loved the field more than I mm. thought I did. You know, I realized that I love my kid, the field. Mm, that's a strong statement. I love my kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I realized there was a reform movement in ABA. I didn't know that, you know, just as a sibling, as a, as a, as a caregiver, you know, there was no way for me to know that. I realized after being an RBT for a little while and trying to kind of figure out where the field was at, that there was this movement within the field. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do that. Like I got into ABA specifically to change it. Mm -hmm. Like with the entire goal of becoming a BCBA and maybe getting my PhD and having authority and changing it through what I've seen as a person, as a caregiver, and now what I've seen through almost four years of practice. So I got into a master's program very quickly because you can. And I did my coursework uh, in 14 months and got my hours in 20 and took my exam. I always tell people that I have like a privilege in this because I've been around the field for so long. I've written about right. ABA for so long. Like I've known it. I know the terminology, like the back of my hand. I knew it. I knew the differential reinforcement procedures at like 15. So like, mm-hmm. I'm not a good test case for like knowledge. I've been around it. It's just saturation, but um, like in, yeah. Ingrained in your yeah everyday repertoire. Exactly. And I'm so used to using the words um, correctly since I was a kid. And then I stayed. I, I left my bad abusive company and I'm at an amazing company now and I love my job and I'm teaching at Arizona State, which I love. I love my university yeah. and um, working towards that reform, trying to find the best way to be that voice. And the Instagram is one way of doing that and making relationships and looking into doing research and just finding a way to be a part of that movement and not just fall into the status quo. What is something you wish you could have told yourself when you were just getting started? It's hard because I had so much pre-knowledge. A lot of people come into this <laughs> field and they never knew anything about it. So they see an RBT or they answer a job ad and they just figure it out, which is crazy to me. You know, mm-hmm. I wish I knew that not all ABA was like the ABA I saw all the time. Mm. Right. Because I came in with the expectation that it was all like that. And I was going to come in like with a jackhammer. And I was just going to like beat the crap out of everybody. I was like, <laughs> I am going to come in here and like did it, revolutionize the world. And then I got here and there was everybody else already doing that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm late to the party. You know, when you're so heavily exposed to one company, one group of people for literally mm-hmm. 20 years, it's very hard to think that ABA exists outside of that. Right. Um, but it does. <laughs> and those preconceived notions that I had of what all ABA must have been, because it's the only thing that I knew. I was very happy to see that that wasn't the case. Also very sad to see that that's the best case scenario for some other people. Right. And so things were in some ways worse than I thought and in many ways better. 
um, your personal experience, and this is something, a life lesson I'm continuing to learn in all aspects of my life and that I very much struggle with, which is that my personal experience isn't everybody's. Mm-hmm. I'm a person that walks with a lot of conviction. I own my experience and I walk forward with it and I lead with it. And I have to stop overgeneralizing. It's one of my like lessons of the next couple of years because I'm really bad at being like, I've had this experience and so you need to know because this is what happened. And I know other people where this has happened too. And being able to expand that slightly maturely and be like, yes, this is someone else's experience. So don't overgeneralize any experience in ABA, whether yours was incredibly positive or negative coming in, your first job, your first anything, because this is an applied science. Um, A dear friend said to me the other day, the way I apply it is different than the way you apply it. And it's supposed to be. We all apply it differently. And so I wish I had known that I didn't have to be quite so angry in the beginning, (laughs) so irritated, (laughs) come in quite so strong, that there was already a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. And I've been grateful to be in a community with them and inspired by them. Especially when you've been in and around ABA for so long, you have like the positive side of it is like you have a long learning history, reinforcement history, punishment history. And so you have a lot of insight than someone that maybe has only been a BCBA in the BCBA world for 20 years but you've been living it for 20 years. Um, But then the cons of it is like, you've seen what ABA looked like 20 years ago and the continuation of poor practices. I'll just say that where do no harm means different things to different people, which is just a wild concept. And I know you and I have talked about that. It's just a wild, wild rice concept. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. But it's the truth. And so it's hard. When you were talking, I was thinking how you said like ABA terminology has always been ingrained in your repertoire, your speech. That's how I feel with ACT. But before Mm -hmm. I knew it as ACT, it was just something that my parents did because they went to some seminar that's very similar to ACT, but used different words. And so I remember the first time, I think when I was studying for the BCBA exam and listening to podcasts to help and Steve Hayes was talking and I was like, wait, 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 <laughs> wait, what? You're talking, you're using the same like principles that I've literally grown up with, but just use like different terminology. It was from the um, the landmark form that my parents did in the 90s like early early Mm -hmm. 90s I was born in 86 and so I was just raised in this like well we tend to get really focused on ourselves and like self-doubt self-conscious like how we look and one of the biggest principles is like well if I feel like that the majority of people feel like that Mm -hmm. and so they're not actually looking at me and what I look like they're listening to their inner dialogue about how they look and they're not really even paying attention to me and so I remember when people started talking that type of thing and act and they're just like well yeah doesn't everyone know that (laughs) and it's like no Rose not everyone knows that okay so I think we need a palate cleanser what is your go-to comfort dish? Oh, okay. I'm a foodie. 
I like you. I love food. Heck yes. But I have <laughs> well, we had this conversation today. I have a lot of food allergies, so I have to be careful. So my default is always carbs because I can always eat carbs. And carbs are an easy way for me to sneak in fruit and vegetable servings that I normally can't have uh, due to my allergies. So my default anything is a bagel, any bagel. I have probably two bagels a day. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I have a cinnamon raisin bagel in the morning, one half butter, one half cream cheese. And then I have a plain bagel at night, one half garden veggie cream cheese, one half strawberry. Mm. And that is literally one of my fruit and vegetable servings for the day because it's one of the few ways I can sneak in fruit. Right. I can't eat many fruits. And so that strawberry cream cheese, they cook the strawberries before they put it in the cream cheese. So I can eat that. Right. And I love bagels. My mom's one of those person who like when you were sick, she'd make you a bagel. Huh. Right. Like extra butter. And so we're just bagel people. We just got saltines. So my mom was one of those people. She was a social worker for so long that she just thinks that food is a human right, like mm-hmm. access to good food and comfort food. And she's never she's one of those people who gets mad when someone's like, those are my leftovers. No one owns food in our house ever, 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 mm-hmm. ever. My friends would come over to our house to eat because their parents were restrictive. And mom's always like, have a little Debbie. I want to come over to your house. <laughs> it was it's so funny. We literally had a conversation about it two days ago because Christian, my brother, is trying to do a little bit better with his health. And so I was reminding him because he asked me to as a source of accountability. And mom was like, don't fuss at him at the table. And I'm like, no, we're adults now. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm helping him. He asked me to. But she's she's funny about it. But yeah, no, bagels are my go to snack i'll eat them raw just out of the bag if i'm running late i'll eat them toasted i'll eat them anyway i love a bagel Hmm. i want to learn more about like the history of bagels i've been seeing more and more things like pop up about um like if you don't use a certain ingredient then it's not a bagel it's just a like a raised bread Bread. um Mm -hmm. because bagels were originally created because the Jewish population were it was illegal for them to make yes. bread and so instead they made bagels and then now it's getting so bougie and people are mm-hmm. like oh you can make it with this ingredient or that ingredient and then the Jewish community is coming out and saying like you just made bread with a hole in the middle <laughs> you just made <laughs> you just Don't made appropriate a our with, culture right right yeah, I know I watched that and now I forgot I forgot the ingredient and I feel stupid. Malt. Ah, malt. Thank you. It flew into my brain after I humbled myself. All right, let's jump into our entrees. I think this is going to be a tasty bite for everybody. What is something that people are surprised to find out about you? I also love this question. I could answer it about 800,000 different ways. But I will answer it this time because I wanted to talk about the fact that I have OCD. And I've been diagnosed OCD since I was 17 years old. My sister is severely ADHD. My brother is autistic. And then I have OCD. So my mother made jokes that we are the bell curve. (laughs) With Christian on one end, Brianna on the other, and me smack dab in the middle. Um, She's convinced she's going to allow us to be donated to science. (laughs) We are the neurodivergent spectrum, which she didn't know that word, but I've taught it to her now. And I've always had OCD for as long as I can remember. And what's interesting about it is that it's a couple of things. Now that I'm an adult and a practitioner and 
on the interwebs and interacting with people and interacting with the neurodivergent community and with people who are critical of the neurodivergent community, I think that OCD is probably one of the most misunderstood Mm. and misrepresented diagnoses, uh, maybe outside of like BPD borderline, which is probably Mm -hmm. not that title or DID, right? We just, for our listeners, instead of using the acronyms, we acronyms. Say what I they know, are. I'm so used to it. Yeah. So, dissociative DID is dissociative identity disorder, and then BPD is borderline personality disorder. So, outside of and OCD, um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm sorry. Can you tell I've been entrenched in this my whole life? This was actually a producer note. He told me that we need to be explaining what these are. Yes. So, I'm not going to get into all of those because I don't have those diagnoses. So, obsessive compulsive disorder yes which i've had my whole life it manifests in in an endless amount of ways for people um the main tenets of ocd are that you have an anxiety it's an anxiety disorder and the anxiety is dampened or quelled or gotten rid of in the moment through a series of behaviors that you call compulsions and i struggled with depression since a young teenager until very recently. Um, My depression is finally in a place through ACT where my depression is in a really good place. So through acceptance and commitment therapy, I've been able to get my PDD, my persistent depressive disorder. I've been able to really get my depression in a place where it's much more manageable than it's ever been, which is amazing. I'm not depressed for the first time in 10 years. And it's like, wow. And then the moment I wasn't depressed, the moment I wasn't depressed, OCD was like, ooh, have you missed me? My turn. <laughs> exactly. So the last year or so, I've been dealing with a with a very strong resurgence in my OCD symptoms that I haven't dealt with in a long, long time. And new symptoms, because I'm an adult now. I have adult things to be anxious about versus just child things. OCD is so misunderstood. People think of it as the cleaning disorder or the neatness disorder. Things have to mm-hmm. be lined up. Things have to match. That's a subtype of OCD called just right OCD. But there are thousands of subtypes. There are people with OCD who manifest entirely internally through mental ritual and mental anxiety. There's highly compulsive. There's harm OCD where you're afraid you're going to hurt yourself and others. There are endless, as many types of anxiety, you could have types of OCD. It's if you Mm -hmm. have compulsive behaviors, right? Behaviors that exist to dampen the anxiety and that are non-adaptive right? We all have coping mechanisms for our anxiety, mm-hmm. but the key is that they're adaptive, right? They don't take away from our quality of life. They don't create their own problems through the coping. And when you have OCD, your brain creates rule-governed behavior that you have to do a thing or else something bad is going to happen. You have to do a thing or else something is terribly wrong. And if you don't do the thing, like, it's almost physically impossible sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so in the last year or so, it's slowly been amping up to where, in my symptomology, to where it's become detrimental. All of a sudden, you know, the little OCD things I've always had since I was a kid, like I like my books a certain way. My books are all organized by the Dewey Decimal System. Um, and I like, they were not that maladaptive. They were definitely mm-hmm. compulsive, but it was whatever. You can't target every compulsion because it's too much. But It's just who you are. It's just you who know, I am. Mm-hmm. Yes, parts of it are just who you are. 
And in the last year, I've gotten puppies. I got my puppies. They were born on February 1st. And through taking care of them, my anxiety has manifested in fear of their well-being constantly, Mm -hmm. which has manifested now into compulsions. I'm waking up in the middle of the night to check on them. I check their food several times a day. I'm lots of checking, lots of reassurance from those around me, lots of fear and anxiety and intrusive imagery about when I'm not home, what happened, what's happening to them. I can't see them. And that's been a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's very mm-hmm. difficult when your anxiety is surrounded about the, the something else being alive something else Mm -hmm. being well, something that you're entirely responsible for. And so I realized about three or four months ago that it's continuing to get worse as they get older. They were very little puppies and now they're almost a year old. But I was like, I need some help because I was doing my act. I was doing my acceptance and commitment therapy. I was doing all my coping mechanisms for my anxiety and depression. I was doing everything I was supposed to do and everything that usually works. And it was getting worse. Mm. And I was like, this is weird. Um, I've been treating myself for a long time and it always works and it's not, it's getting worse. It's just getting worse. And I couldn't figure out why nothing was working. Um, I'm a person with a lot of Mm self-awareness and I just couldn't figure out what was wrong. So I reached out to a handful of experts and I found a PhD level, uh, psychiatrist who had ACT training and she specializes in exposure uh, response therapy, which is the the textbook treatment for OCD uh, or exposure response prevention. It's called a couple of things. <laughs> and I went to my first session of, th- of anticipating therapy, anticipating to talk about my feelings and to journal. Nope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nope. Exposure therapy is a lot. And what I learned in that first meeting, when I told her I was a BCBA, she lit up like a Christmas tree. And she said, thank God, this is going to be a lot easier. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I have a key for you to unlock how you're going to get better. And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, what? And she goes, OCD and treating OCD is behaviorism. It's operant. And usually mm-hmm. it takes me four or five sessions to just teach people that. She said, but you're going to get it in this first session. So you're going to save some money. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> so through through the session and through thinking and journaling and talking and reading more about it, I realized that when you're in an OCD pattern, you have the anxiety, you do the compulsion, you get relief, right? The antecedent is the anxiety, the behavior is the compulsion, the consequence is relief. The compulsions are positively reinforcing the anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. You're stuck in a feedback reinforcement loop. Mm. the compulsions are being positively reinforced because they are what's making you feel better Mm -hmm. and your brain is telling you that those momentary moments of relief that you get after you do the compulsion is what's going to fix it the problem is anxiety Mm -hmm. is the only habit or the only emotion that we have been able to prove we habitualize it becomes a habit we get used to it and so the anxiety just find something else. You find a way to fix the the compulsion, right? So I put a camera on the puppy so I could see them and it made me feel better for a week or two. Then I was compulsively checking the camera. If I went too long, I'd be afraid, right? So anything you do is a temporary fix. It's not fixing the core anxiety, which is illogical. 
Mm-hmm. I have been doing the BCBA thing for my behavior. I've been finding functional behavioral replacements. I've been trying to make myself feel better. But the truth about OCD is that there is no function to the behavior. It's illogical. It's irrational. There is no true function. And the only thing you can do is put yourself on full extinction. Mm-hmm. And putting yourself on extinction when you're the only person who interacts with the behavior, interacts with the consequence, and then you have to choose the extinction all internally, right? You can't externalize it because no one else knows, you know? And right. another aspect mm-hmm. of OCD that's incredibly complicated is that telling other people can be compulsive. Talking about it can be compulsive because mm-hmm. if it relieves the anxiety, we call it reassurance seeking, trauma dumping, I guess would be a, an, an adjective people might understand a little bit better. When you're seeking that reassurance, it's functioning as a reinforcement. So mm-hmm. it can be an incredibly isolating process. Extinction is difficult and ethically ambiguous anyway. And when you're doing it entirely to yourself, entirely with things that are internally contingent, it's complicated. And here I am, this person who's known all of these words it's my whole life, right? We talked about like this language is internalized for me. Then this this PhD is giving me all this information that you have the tools. It's just really going to suck. Like it's just really going to be hard. And so now I'm in that process of, of putting myself on extinction um, and my own behaviors on extinction completely internally mm-hmm. with a once a week, 50 minute check in with her. <laughs> and it's very hard. And I want people to know and understand about me and about others that you never really know what people are going through. Right. Mm-hmm. Neurodivergence doesn't always look one way. OCD is a spe- is exceptionally a neurodivergent. My brain works incredibly differently and not always adaptively. And I'm very good at masking and I'm very good at pretending like everything's okay, but there are days where it's unbearable. And a lot of us aren't out. I talk about my OCD on Instagram all the time and people come to me, other BCBAs and RBTs that they're struggling with the same Mm -hmm. thing. They're seeking diagnosis. They don't know what to do. The imagery is overwhelming. The thoughts are exhausting. And OCD is one of those things that hasn't quite hit the mainstream in reality yet. The Mm -hmm. way I'd say autism and ADHD have. Um, People think it's just cleaning. Um, The intrusive thoughts can be incredibly violent. They can be disturbing. They can be exhausting. And ACT is an especially powerful tool in diffusing from the ideas that your thoughts are yourself. They're not. Thoughts are thoughts. They come and they go. They're brought on by stimulus in the environment. But I've been going through this the last six months. And I've had to do a lot of change, a lot of behaviors to to avoid rumination, to avoid intrusive thoughts, to avoid over avoid overstimulation. And it's hard. And I'm realizing that being a BCBA kind of worked against me in the beginning because I was doing Mm -hmm. behavioral modification on myself that made sense to me. But the assumptions of our science don't apply to thoughts that have no rationality. And so I was actually no function. function. Mm -hmm. Not every behavior has a function like red alert headline. You know, anxiety has no function. My compulsive behaviors, the only function they serve is to reinforce the anxiety which is not a validated function to me. And so it's upsetting and exhausting. Um, I'm grateful to have the education that I do so that I can understand the procedures I have to do to get better. 
but it's hard work. Extinction is hard work on our kids when we have mm-hmm. to do it, when we decide that we have to do it. And that's when there's a team of people helping a person do it. Mm-hmm. Doing it by yourself is hard. And having that constant self-analytics of, is this a compulsion? Do I need to do something about it? Am I doing something wrong? And so I'm a person who lives with pretty severe OCD. And it doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always look like I'm struggling. But I'm hoping that ABA as a field, I think there's a lot of good people who could help our kids with OCD. I think a lot of our kids have OCD and anxiety mm-hmm. and compulsive behaviors. You know, it's measured on the Vineland. It's measured on the VB map and the barriers assessment. And it's just something we think about, oh, they're compulsive sometimes. The internal experience of having OCD is incredibly stressful and exhausting and terrifying. And doing that and not having the language to say those words, not being validated in those feelings, having ABA done to you when your behavior isn't coming from a behavioral place, it's coming from a compulsive place. And having behavioral modification done to you can be incredibly harmful. And so I'm hoping in the next few years and to be a part of uh, an understanding of how OCD manifests in our clients and in our people that we're serving and that maybe we can have a better understanding of how ABA isn't the best treatment for OCD. And in fact, Mm -hmm. it can be quite harmful and how I'm, I'm using the term extinction because it's a term I understand and I know this audience will understand, but textbook right. extinction doesn't work either because someone else can't do it to you or for you. My hope is that we learn more about OCD and it becomes something that people know more about. It becomes something that it's not just the end of the barriers assessment on the VB map. If we find compulsions mm-hmm. in our clients, we're getting them adequate help. We recognize that ABA isn't the help that they need and that we aren't qualified to treat that kind of behavior and that our treatment of this disease changes and grows as we move forward. And it's something I'm hoping once I'm feeling a little bit better to be a part of. I was taking notes while you're talking because there were so many really great points. Like I know more about anxiety because I have an anxiety disorder. I've had it my entire life. I remember ruminating on things at like three or four years old and not sleeping and all of that. But as you were talking, what I was like envisioning to put it in like more of a visual perspective, anxiety is like a hungry teenage boy who's never full. So you give him a snack, you set up a camera. Guess what? He's still hungry. So then you're checking the cameras more, you know, giving him another plate of grilled cheese sandwiches or something. And he's like, nope, still hungry. I still need a gallon of milk. I need now I need some cookies. Now I need some ice cream. Now, And it just... It's like a black hole that is never full. It just needs to eat, eat, eat. And so I like, I understand, I understand that. And I think a lot of our listeners will also understand that because I think a lot of us have some form of anxiety, whether it's, you know, day-to-day anxiety or an anxiety disorder or anxiety as a symptom of OCD or ADHD or whatever it is. It's very prevalent but also not discussed in like a helping way I feel like all of these terms are like oh I cleaned the house today I'm so OCD and you're like no Mm -hmm. no that's not what it means and then like the mainstream media uh, I was when I was prepping for this I was talking to my husband and I mean you can't even really 
think of anyone that's portrayed with OCD in the media. Uh, the only thing we could come up with for like just straight off the dome remembering was Michael J. Fox in Scrubs. They discuss it and it's really how I liked how they did it. I really like Scrubs as a show is they didn't, they just mentioned it, but it, he was just like, I'm fun. I'm great. And he was doing a lot of masking until um, he was getting ready for surgery or he was finishing up surgery and they're like, oh, where's doctor? I forget what his name is in the show. Like, oh, where's doctor? And he's like stuck in a loop doing the same things an hour after surgery. And so I, I liked that, even though it is a clean, you know, it's the kind of stereotypical, like, oh, I need to wash my hands a bunch of times. But I liked that he, everyone liked him. And then you realize that it's all him masking. And then other than that, I think um, Howie Mandel is like diagnosed with OCD. Yeah. But again, that comes up as like, like don't touch don't me touch type me. of thing. Yeah. Ableism is such a beast, right? And the ableism mm -hmm. surrounding OCD specifically is incredibly limiting because they talk about, and that's not, a lot of people have contamination OCD and it's completely valid and mm -hmm. their representation is valid. It's a it's a very harmful thing, especially after COVID. A lot of people have developed it mm -hmm. because we lived in this hyper afraid, hyper fearful, anxiety driven world for so long. But it's one tiny subsection of OCD. And what people don't talk about in contamination OCD is, yes, don't touch me, Howie Mandel. But it's the intrusive images that come when you're afraid. It's your mm -hmm. face rotting off that you can't get out of your head. It's that nightmares that mm -hmm. keep you up at night that you're going to die from from Ebola and you're bleeding out in your sheets and you wake up covered in blood in your mind. That's the thing people don't talk about. Mm -hmm. It just it's not just, oh, don't right. touch me. Mm, no, mm, not right. It's mm -hmm. this whole process that starts with these intrusive images and thoughts, which manifest into anxiety, which manifests into explosive behaviors, which manifest into a lifestyle. And the ableism of oh, I'm so OCD or like hashtag OCD, hashtag mm -hmm. Marie Kondo, hashtag no joy. And you're just like, oh, what? I see things all the time. Even now it's, it's such an easy thing to say. It, it's become so ingrained with culture that clean equals OCD. I don't have contamination OCD. I'm a freaking mess. I have apathetic depression. So my space <laughs> is destroyed 95% of the time. Mm hmm. This is one of those things about intersectionality and mental health is that anyone with anxiety or anyone can have OCD symptoms, right? Now, whether or not it's diagnosable or what that even means is always up for debate. But if you are starting to have behaviors that you feel you cannot control, that you have to do in order to manage your anxiety, that's a compulsion. And mm -hmm. it doesn't feel good. You know, it doesn't feel happy. It doesn't feel in alignment. It doesn't feel in alignment with your values. Mm -hmm. It feels like someone else is making you do something <laughs> because if you don't, something terrible is going to happen. Mm -hmm. I used to wish when I was a kid, I was a mess. Okay. I, I can't keep my room clean. I'm doing better now that I have like accountability measures, but like I've never been able to keep a space clean. And I used to wish I had mm -hmm. contamination OCD as a kid because then at least I wouldn't get mm -hmm. fussed out about my room being a mess. 
Like, why do I yeah. have to wake up screaming thinking that someone's trying to kill me? Why can't I just want to line things up? Like, why can't it be easy? <laughs> you getting jealous of, of other OCDers. Yeah, you know, and I think that there's some weird intersectionality with that. But you were talking about media. Sure. Private Practice, which was the spinoff from Grey's Anatomy with Kate Walsh. They have a psychiatrist, Violet, on that show, who I love. I watched that show way too young. Um, I rewatch it now as an adult. and I'm like, this was awful. Why was I watching it? But she had a client with OCD whose husband had died. And so she's counting the tiles on the mall floor. And she get called in to her client. So she's on the floor with her client crawling around and she's counting. And I was like, hey, I do that. I count when I'm nervous, like when I'm anxious. It's something I can mm-hmm. control, right? It's something that that makes me feel better. And I've decided it's not that maladaptive. So it's not something I'm currently targeting. Yeah. I mean, that's a mindfulness practice. Yes. You know, and that's counting. the funny thing, too. Um, my psychiatrist told me when we first started that ACT, that acceptance and commitment therapy, is an amazing tool to have in your toolbox if you already know it for OCD. It's not something she mm-hmm. teaches people to treat OCD because it encourages rumination. <laughs> like, you yeah. get too in your head mm-hmm. about it right there's there's parts of act and i think people who study act and have published books on act and ocd will disagree with me as someone who studied act for almost five years for myself and now i'm trying to apply it to ocd i see some truth in this which is that there's parts of act that keep you in the loop that don't get you Mm -hmm. out and it's all about how you apply it and it's all about your your thoughts about it acceptance is huge and diffusion is huge but you can't get too Mm -hmm. caught on committed action and values because you're you're being Mm -hmm. compulsive it can make you very ruminative. And so, yeah, some mindfulness techniques like counting body scans. I can't do body scans. The amount of violent imagery that comes to me is intrusive and that I have struggled with during body scans. I can't do it. Right. So mm-hmm. like mindfulness practices mm-hmm. that are super good for everybody and that everyone should do. I can't do guided meditations usually. So it's just about being aware. Right aware at how different things that are super helpful for others aren't that helpful for others and that's okay it's like the individualized treatment that like we talk about with our clients has to be true for for all of us too and that ocd isn't just being clean it's a very strange and wide range and uh nefarious disease and it affects a lot of people differently in my mind, the two like biggest differences are, I think you said one of them, which is doing the action, the compulsion, whatever it is, if that's making you feel like good, like if you're happy at the end of the compulsion, then it's probably not OCD. And then the second one is the imagery that comes along with it if you don't do the compulsion. And that's like the difference. So like, yeah, you know, you need to like clean up the house and you feel happy once you're done. But if you procrastinate, you're not thinking that like your entire family is going to die or yeah. like your skin is going to melt off or, you know, and that, that in my mind, that's like the clear difference between anxiety, just plain anxiety or liking things clean and neat to like diagnosable OCD, even though I don't diagnose disclaimer. I don't either. I was just going to say, I'm not an expert. I'm a person who's had this diagnosis forever. And I'm just went through this treatment. Mm -hmm. And I told Rosie, I was like, this is insane. It's, it's like operant conditioning, (laughs) like it's ABA, but not ABA. And it's, 
I need to say this out loud, right? And I'm not an OCD expert and I'm not, I'm just a person with OCD who happens to be a BCBA going through this treatment. You're an expert on your yes, OCD. Yes, I am an expert on my OCD and on my experience of it. And everyone's experience of it is very, very different. It's it's not something that's a standardized disease at all. And so if we take anything from it, from this, just, you never know what people are going through. We all seem really mm-hmm. smiley and happy and vin- and vindicated and all the things we seem on social media. You never know what people are going through. And yeah. be kind. I know we all say that and I know it all it's you get tired of hearing it, but it's just it's so true, you know. Um mm-hmm. just be kind to people because people suffer invisibly with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Be kind and be like patient and like give grace. Because everyone, even people that we don't agree with or particularly want to interact with, I'm always like assuming that they are going through something. And this is part of like my growing up whenever I was like bullied, which was like all of all of the time, my parents, especially my mom, she said a bunch of things. She also would like give me, you know, like candy and stuff. (laughs) That's how food became so comforting. But she would also say to me that they must be living in hell. She's like, for them to be that mean to you for almost no reason, whatever was going on, she's like, maybe they are having a tough time at home. Maybe their parents are fighting. You know, like you really don't know. She would just be like, don't take crap from them, but also understand that that they probably don't really mean it to you. They just are going through like their own form of hell. And I've had to learn that I'm 10 years younger than you now. Even over the last six months, I've really been able to apply what I feel where I'm looking at someone's behavior online and I'm thinking to myself, like, this person is terrible. My God, what's wrong with them? And then Mm -hmm. that shifted even in the last six months to I'm so sorry for whatever position you're in Mm -hmm. that makes you think this is okay. I'm going to remove myself Mm -hmm from this position because I don't think any good can be done here by my presence. It's not doing any good to me. It's functioning as self-harm. It's functioning as feeding the black hole. Right. And I'm going to take a step back and just focus on what I'm doing. And that's been a huge growth point for me. And part of that has been this OCD treatment of limiting input, limiting things for my rumination and my anxiety to latch onto, you know, limiting, limiting what's coming in and, that's okay. You know, after so many years in political science and so many years, the last couple of years in politics, generally, we get into this habit of doom scrolling, or we get in this habit of have to Mm -hmm. take in everything all the time to be ethical consumers, to be ethical citizens, to be ethical people. You have to just constantly be aware. Constantly consuming. Yes, must constantly be consuming. And that's been a bad habit to break. You become a news junkie as a poli-sci person because you're just constantly Mm -hmm. in, in in the mess. And changing that and, and and doing that has been a big part of me getting better but um be kind educate yourself about OCD the other thing I wanted to say because if you start seeing compulsive symptoms in your clients I'm going to say this again it's not just a little barrier bar on the end of the VB map mm-hmm. it's a serious thing that you are not qualified to treat and that as yeah. they get older will continue could continue to get worse and yeah I've seen much older clients who struggle significantly with compulsions don't have the language to talk about it don't have the they don't even know what anxiety is 
and they've been punished or reinforced or punished and reinforced and token boarded mm-hmm. through their through their OCD and it's not it's incredibly harmful and so if you think you have a client or someone in your life that you're seeing that kind of compulsive behavior you need to say something you need to admit you're out of scope and and seek help qualified help because you cannot ABA yourself out of OCD and you can't ABA your clients out of compulsive behavior and it could do a lot of damage. All right, Krista, that was a very heavy entree. And I wanted to know, do you have room for dessert? Always. Awesome. So I am definitely ready for something sweet. So I wanted to ask you, what is the best compliment you've ever received? Words of affirmation are my fifth favorite love language. I don't like it. As I grow older, I realize that it's it's a trauma response. I don't believe people. And so it makes mm. me ruminative. And mm-hmm. I used to just think that I don't need it. And now I'm old enough to realize that that's BS. So I'm trying to open myself to more words of affirmation and not have that initial cringe response that I've always had. to them. But for some reason with children, it's never been a problem. It's just with other adults. I had a client, my first company, who is one of one of we all have that client right that that changed the game and he changed Mm -hmm. the game for me and when I told him I was leaving um and that I wasn't going to see him for probably a year because I had a clause in my contract that I couldn't see clients for a year after I left the company he was seven and he kind of looked at me and he kind of thought about it for a second looked at me thought about it for a second and he went gonna be a really long year oh it's so sweet and you know was not expecting that no and I'm gonna cry it's like thinking about it because we were together all through the pandemic constantly I was put in his pod and we got in that point where you know when you're with a client too much as an RBT and they start to hate you um we kind of had gotten to that point a couple (laughs) times um and but we were just stuck because we were in the middle of COVID and we just had to find a way to push through. I think I might have one of the healthiest relationships in my life with that child because we just communicated. Like, I know you're tired of me. Mm-hmm. We're in this middle of this mass pandemic. Everything's exhausting. How? What can we do? And I, I learned. Mm-hmm. He bought. He taught me to not just be an RBT, not just be a behaviorist, but to be a person and a friend. Mm-hmm. That pairing wasn't something you did 30 minutes a week. That it's something you did constantly. That it's our job mm-hmm. to adapt to the child because they're learning to adapt to themselves. That mm-hmm. kid changed my life. And um, he didn't say, I love you so much. I'm going to miss you so much. All the things that would have made me cringe and I wouldn't have liked. He just acknowledged mm-hmm. that's going to be hard, which is something I taught him to do. And so Aww. my favorite moment ever was just that acknowledgement. And we just let it sit there for a second, you know, that acknowledgement that that was going to be sad and that was going to be hard. And it was, it was. It was a compliment in so many ways that he'll never understand, you know, about the work that we had done Mm -hmm. together and the relationship that we had and how much better of an RBT I was when I left than when I got there. And yeah, I loved that. It made me really happy. That's so sweet. That's so sweet. I mean, I think I think anyone that we interacted with consistently, like through 2020, especially we are like forever bonded to them. It's just so sweet. And I need another scoop of that sweetness. So what is your favorite thing about what you do? I'm gonna be honest, I struggle with this question. And it's because I have a lot of things about what we do that I struggle with. 
um, because of all that learning history. It's a constant, it feels like a constant tug of war, but the more I do it and the more I'm in control of it as the BCBA and not as the tech, and the more I'm able to set the tone myself, I realize my favorite part is that I love parent training. Okay. I love sessions. I love community outings. Like there's little parts of what we do that I love to do. But what I love the most is being in charge. <laughs> what I love the most is being able to set the tone. Like I'm a huge ER fan. Dr. Green left with terminal cancer and he looked at Carter and he went, you set the tone. And then Carter left and looked at Morris and said, you set the tone. And for 18 years, this show just went on and on. And realizing that I had the power to do that, that this wasn't this monster that I couldn't tame, that this wasn't this thing that I didn't have any control over. It's like, no, I set the tone with my families, with my techs with my boss on my Instagram, I get to set my tone and I get to set how people feel about their work, how people feel about their day, how people, when it goes bad, how they feel about coming to me about it. Those are all things I'm finally in control over. And I get to be the BCBA I always wanted. And I get to be the BCBA I never had. <laughs> and I get to be the mentor I didn't have in this field. And I get to guide and I get to be and so honestly supervision is one of the things that I love most I never thought it would be I don't usually like teaching I'm not an incredibly patient person but being able to to do supervision is one of my favorite parts of my day because I know that I'm planting seeds right and that these clinicians they'll keep going and they're going to keep growing and my RBTs and my BCBA candidates they're going to keep going and they're going to touch more kids and they're going to be able to touch more families and they're going to be able to go forward in the tone. They're not going to have any of the trauma we have, right? From bad right. supervision and unethical treatment and, and supervisory hell, all this trauma I have, I get to not do that. I get to be a good supervisor. Right. I get to have RBTs who don't know what it's like to cry in the car after a session. Mm-hmm. And if they do, they call me and they never, Cheers to that. I never cry alone. <laughs> I know, right? They don't know. My texts, I tell them things that have happened to me sometimes. They're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, that's the best compliment too. Like, you don't know what it's like <laughs> to be in hell in ABA because I create a situation in which you're not and I get to control that. And so I love that about this job and where I am in this job right now. I wholeheartedly agree with that one. But like across all domains, like I'm so happy to do that for the parents that have been through different companies, ABA, um, or even early intervention. There can be some traumatizing there. And then staff that have come from other companies. I like the staff that they come to us and were their first ABA job. <laughs> they have no, no idea. idea. And like other staff members would be like, you don't, you don't get it. <laughs> And I'm like, but that's fine. That's the goal. The goal is to have children that aren't as traumatized as you. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's like the big difference, especially in our little like community that we constantly talk about is there's usually two type of two types of people. The people that are like, well, I had to go through it. So you have to go through it. Or I went through it so that you don't have to go through it. Like I will make sure that you don't. And I used to kind of oscillate between the two of like, but they need to understand like how bad it was. And then I'm like, but who does that serve? Like that literally serves no one. And all that does is perpetuate this like ongoing cycle, because if I said that to them and they went through it, they would then pass it on to the third generation and the fourth generation. And 
the best visual um, that I still have like the screenshot in my phone. It's like my phone. I have no room on my phone, but I will continue to keep this photo from a 2020 presentation put on by Dr. Tyra Sellers of zombie supervision, basically. So like if you had a bad supervisor and they supervised three people, aka the zombie bit them, that's now three new bad supervisors and those three supervise three more and like a pyramid scheme yeah. of like zombie bad supervisors and i i think about that so often whereas like you could be good and <laughs> affecting change across everybody's lives and that will ripple effect like out to everybody and being able to have control of that when you're getting your hours and you're prepping for the exam and you're an rbt you feel so out of control right you don't control mm-hmm. your case you don't control your programming, you don't control your schedule, you don't control anything. And when you finally are able to get to this point and you've passed and you're beat the BCBA, it can be really overwhelming. You're like, oh crap, imposter syndrome and I have to do it now. But it's also when you just are able to accept Mm -hmm. that and take it as the privilege that it is, which is I now have the privilege to control my staff and my clients and how they feel in their experience. And that's my job now. And it's a good one. It's a good job to have. Yes. Oh, I am full. <laughs> this was a really good meal. Um, so we are at our nightcap now. So is there anything that I should have asked you and I didn't or anything else that you want to mention? No, I don't think so. I think we really went through it. I appreciate the space to be able to talk about it. You know, practitioner diagnosis has always been a big taboo topic. We're the healers. We don't get to be sick. Mm-hmm. And I think that slowly dismantling that is going to be how we all get better. And I appreciate the space to come and talk about it. And the meal, of course, I'll never say no to free food. <laughs> awesome. And are there any social media platforms that you want to plug so listeners can find out more about you and connect? Yes, of course. You can find me on Instagram at the ABA Ginger. That's it for now. Thinking about expanding to a podcast later in the year. We shall see but check out for updates there for sure. Awesome. Thank you for sharing a bite with us. All of Carissa's links and Instagram handle will be in the show notes and on my website. You can find me on Instagram at rosieeatsbx or my website rosiebx.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and subscribe. And until our next meal, bye. Bye.